diving in, and I, uh, again, trying to get through all the, all the material. Uh, most important thing, though, is I hope that you're reading through Psalm 119 and grasping what is said there, the depth of this psalm. And so I think how I've laid it out, even though I get behind, we'll still finish before we end our, I call school year. You guys aren't in school, but the school year for Awana at the end of May. I'm hoping that the last week, so that, that'll be the 30th of May, would be more of a, a collaborative talking through Psalm 119. So I just really want you to think about uh, some of the real-life applications of Psalm 119 for you, uh, maybe some insights you've gathered while reading it. And then I want to link us back, and I'll, I'll be reminding us um, in the weeks to come, and maybe I can make a handout on the, the eight words for law or for the Word of God that we talked about. And as we talked the last week of May, i like us to be centering around those words, and as we see these insights connecting, because that is a, that is, those words are repeated as we walk through. There's a lot of words that are repeated, but we walk through it. So just in mind, keep, keep that kind of component in mind. You think, well, Kenny, you're always behind. Even if I'm behind, the last week, we're going to dive in together. So coming here May 30th, come ready to share it. I'm looking for, again, practical application of Psalm 119 in life. Go ahead and take the plow a little deeper sometimes than we often do. You know, we're not looking for the easy, I'm going to make sure I read God's Word. I, yeah, I hope so, after all the things we've said. Um, but plow, plow deep into some things. Maybe it's repeated from what we've talked about here. Maybe it's an insight as, as you're studying Scripture that you've gathered. And then connect to the eight words for God's Word that we've been highlighting as we go through, uh, just as a chance for us to share collectively uh, so we wrap our mind around Psalm 119. And again, if I haven't finished the whole psalm, uh, you can finish reading it, obviously. We're going to dive in that last week. And so come prepared to talk. Uh, in other words, I'm not going to write this at all. I'll write some ideas. Obviously, you're getting uh, the, the fruit of my study, but then I'm hoping the fruit of y'all's study and our study together as we, we grab hold of Psalm 119. As we looked at it, again, this is, oh, there we are. Um, you have the 22 breakdowns, and again, they're not perfect, but at least it's different words tying into this idea of consistently. Uh, I did that on purpose. We are to be consistent. And so I'm going to jump right into where we were. I chatted briefly about this when we closed out last week. Use it consistently, 41 through 48. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression, use it or lose it. Ever had that one thrown out there? Uh, And I think I mentioned last week, but I'll just repeat it. Uh, There's certain things you do, like riding a bike, that people say it's like riding a bike, right? That the idea is once you learn it, you never forget. Uh, I can attest to this. I, I haven't gotten on a bike and then said, man, I've forgotten how to ride a bike. My confidence level on a bike is a lot lower than it was when I was in my 20s, when I was at college. Uh, I was at Virginia Tech. I mountain biked everywhere, and we would go down three flights of stairs in a bike. I'm not attempting that anymore, but I can still ride a bicycle. Uh, but there's sometimes that skills slip. Uh, and I was thinking of something very, uh, that, that happened to me. So I travel frequently to Central America. And so during COVID, you couldn't travel. And so my Spanish usage went way down. I had Zoom meetings, but I wasn't in the country for days at a time. And what happened from the COVID isolation and lack of travel is that my conversational Spanish took a major hit. 
And I felt it when I first went back, because in a Zoom meeting, you gear up, and then you can move around, and there's other people in the meeting. But suddenly, I'm in the country, and I'm just conversing. I'm chatting with people about life, and we're walking through, and I'm thinking, man, my Spanish has gotten rusty. And how I know it's gotten rusty is when I'm in Nicaragua, I usually know when they're using Nicaraguan words. And I don't bother learning the 160-page dictionary of words they've made up just for their country because there's always another Spanish word. So I'll tell them periodically, like, yeah, I don't know what bug you're talking about. You've got to use a Spanish name for that bug. And they'll always switch. They had different names for every animal, every bug, uh, some nuances of, of culture. But I know my Spanish is on point when I can recognize that. When I land in Nicaragua, I'm like, I'm just confused all the time. Then I know my Spanish has slipped. And that's that idea that when I'm not talking Spanish, it slips. So the idea of using it or losing it, when it comes to language, you see that get very rusty. Uh, you, do not, you do not maintain your same level of ability or smoothness in the language. And so the ability sleeps. My, my whole point is this. If we desire to be proficient at God's word, if that is the idea that we are engrossed in it, to be good at it, it needs to be used regularly. And that's what I mean by the call to use it consistently. And we're going to dive into this psalm. I'm going to read verses 41 through 48. It says here, Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him, That reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. And I I want you to pick up on that. He's answering him with the word. He doesn't want the word removed from his mouth. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. And if you walk through this, the idea of using it consistently, and I mentioned this last week, and I find it fascinating when you think about the speaking of the testimonies before kings, and then think of the book of Acts and how many times Paul stood before authorities or governors, how many times the apostles stood before ruling members of society and they spoke the word of God and were not ashamed. Acts 4.29, the disciples pray for that boldness in speaking the word of God. And now, Lord, they say, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. In this section, and I mentioned again last week, I think it's important. This section is the prerequisite to actually doing what the New Testament prays about. When the apostles are praying about fear, it's a tangible fear. Sometimes when I read through Acts, I, I forget that their life was in danger, that they were told to stop doing this, that they were thrown into prison, that they were beaten, that they were threatened. It's easy to forget that right after Christ died, they're speaking in his name, And these are the same people, it's not a new generation, it's not a new crop of leaders, the same people that have killed Christ, hung him on the cross, are the same people saying, we're going to kill you. Are they serious about killing you? Well, they've killed before. When someone's killed before, you know it's not an empty threat. And so as they're diving in, they're asking that the word 
be in their mouth, just like the psalmist is saying, that it comes out that it's the words that they speak. Uh, the word trusted, obeyed, sought, and loved. That's what this section is talking about. The Word of God is the ruling force of our life, containing the truth we eagerly want to share. And that's why I use the word use it consistently, or at least it should be what we want to share. Uh, one author remarks that if God is not ruling us, something else is. He listed sin and habit, anxiety, desire for money and success, anything else. If God's Word is not the ruling influence, if that's not the topic of conversation, something else is. There is no neutrality. You're not in neutral when it comes to God's Word. You're either using it or something else is being used by you. You are talking something. When you stand before kings, you're saying something. And the psalmist is saying, I want to speak what God has to say. The apostles are saying, I want to speak what your word has to say. But when God is in charge, the author continued, these things lose their inordinate power over us. Not even kings are feared. Back to verse 46. The fact is, the psalmist says, I will speak thy testimonies. And what's that next word? Also. What does that imply? In addition to, and it's connected to, he's going to speak thy testimonies also before kings. He's not going to also speak his testimonies, but he's going to speak his testimonies also before kings. The implication of that verse is he speaks his testimonies before other people as well. And kings becomes a comparison, right? When you have a kingship, you have a king and then you have what? Subjects. In other words, if you're looking at the contrast, I speak your word to the subjects and I'll speak it to the king. What the psalmist is, is telling us is that he's not going to fear power, but that he's also not going to fear man. He is speaking God's testimonies before everyone. And he says, I will not be ashamed. His goal was to boldly make God's truth, his rule known to, and in the verse it says, the rulers but he also tells us that he's making it known to those ruled, everyone else. And so here is someone who is committing to using God's word consistently, not just applying God's word to this specific circumstance of life and then responding in that way, but instead, when I, I use the word use or tell it consistently, this is the psalmist saying, I'm going to proclaim God's word. That when I talk to somebody... God's truth comes out. Now, I wanted to, to kind of dive into the discussion question. You can see it up here. And we'll take a minute at each table and then kind of just throw out inhibitors. And I want them to be one to three word inhibitors. So just throw out something that would inhibit this. But what are some real life inhibitors to using God's word consistently? And my, my emphasis is on what your mouth says. What prevents you from talking God's Word, and then some thoughts on overcoming them. I listed a few of them. What could inhibit me from speaking God's Word? Fear of man. And I don't want to stick with that one because it's a three-word answer. So one to three words. Chat with your group a little bit about what would maybe inhibit your ability to speak God's word, and then how do you overcome it? How do I overcome the fear of man? Well, that's a perspective issue. It's how I perceive mankind 
compared to God. If I see God correctly, then who shrinks? Man does. When man is big, then we have a what kind of view of God? Small one. There's a counseling book out there about that. When, when what is it, man is big and God is small? And the idea is a lot of our struggles, a lot of the wrestling we face, it centers around the fact that we have the wrong perspective. And so that's just one example. Let's go ahead and take one minute, because I'm going to work through these six that I've listed. One minute, and then we're going to kind of go around the room and take another minute just to share what are some things that inhibit us speaking God's Word, speaking His truth. So we'll do the minute, and then we'll start uh, with table number one, empty two. We'll go to three then. We're waiting for Bob's wisdom to come out, and then we'll go around the room that way. All right, I gave you a little more than a minute. I know it's kind of rushed to work through it, but uh, table one, what is a one or three-word answer to what inhibits us from maybe using God's Word, mouthing it, proclaiming it? Lack of knowledge, knowledge, right? We fear the inability. And how would you overcome that? Yeah, so... I know, I know one way, right? You can, you can be studying God's Word, you do it. So we, we know it, but there is that, right? We're, we're f- fearful of a situation we might walk into. Uh, table three, what is one thing for you? We'll just kind of loop around. Yeah, we can... You feel guilty, right? You feel like your life doesn't measure up. If I, I'm a hypocrite if I say this. And Satan does use that to discourage us. Uh, one, what is, what is the solution to that? If we confess our sins, be faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, it's going to God's Word and recognizing what God says about that and knowing the forgiveness of sin and then believing what He says about the forgiveness of sin because the guilt from that after we've had forgiveness would definitely be satanic, right? To, to kind of bring back to account what God says He's not bringing to account. Uh, that's there. Table six. Fear of authority, right? Fear of, fear of rulers that would come up. And there's repercussions, right? If I share truth, then what is the repercussion, whether that is a job, whether that is imprisonment? There's countries where, uh, again, in in, uh, India, I mentioned this to you, 15 states in India have an anti-conversion law. You share the gospel, and it's not innocent until proven guilty. It's guilty until you prove yourself innocent, and you're guilty just because someone accuses you of it. And so you'd be fearful going to prison and and that's a real tangible, we don't have as much of that fear, right, in the United States, but it's tangible there. It's palatable. And how do you overcome that? Mm-hmm. To overcome that, what do we have to do? Yeah, it's, it's, it's seeing his provision, but also where is our treasure? Doesn't it remove that, right? If, oh, I'm going to lose my job, I speak the word. Okay, where's your treasure at? Where's your heart at? Right? Trusting in him, trusting in his people uh, to help when it's there. Table five, what is a one to three word inhibitor to speaking God's word? Fear of rejection, right? Because people do respond in a, in a, in a harsh way or a mocking way. And, and again, a lot of it's going to come back to how we see God and how we're going to see uh, man, table four, what are some inhibitors there? Time, yeah. Depth, right? It's, we, we fear the deep conversation. I've, I think I've shared this a thousand times, but 
I go on a plane and I feel conviction to talk about it, and I just go with what I call the most shallow thing. Are you believing God? And most people that hear that question that don't believe in God and have some sense or say, yeah, because they don't want to get into a conversation with you, right? They know this, this, this. And I remember being on a plane to Holland, and this gentleman in front of me started sharing the gospel, and I could see the rejection on, on the face of this person. And, and I was, this guy just kept at it, not in an obnoxious way, but in he's sharing truth. And I remember thinking how horrible I was. I'm like, man, you're making this plane ride awkward. And I'm not even talking, and I believe what he's saying. And I thought, wow. And he invested the time and the rejection because it happened and all those things. And I was looking at myself and I'm not even there and I'm the one that's not. I'm like, oh, man, all right, let's just take off here. Let's get this thing going. Um, It's easy to find things that make us stumble when it comes to sharing. When I say use it consistently, that we speak his words. Uh, I put a couple other fear fear of failure, which would tie to the idea of knowledge, a lack of of deep biblical trust. Do I really believe what I'm saying? Do I actually, is, is, we say it, right? On Sunday, we have no problem saying it. We commit to it on a, on a peripheral level or a superficial level that we believe this is the most important thing in the world. There could be no other truth that's more important than this. Nothing else, nothing is more valuable. And then we got to look at how often we talk about it, how often it comes out of our mouth, how often it's what we want to share with somebody. Is it the football stats, the baseball stats? Is it playing golf? Is it doing the hobby? Is it accomplishing what my dreams are that are the most important? Or is it, I truly believe that this is truth and everyone needs it. And then the other one I wrote down is lack of love. If, if, if we don't truly love as God loves, if we don't truly love with His heart, the Savior's heart, uh, then sometimes we don't share biblical truth because we don't love enough because our priorities are higher or we're selfish in our, our love. And so uh, as we look at applying His Word consistently in life to use it in a real way, in a real circumstances, then we certainly must, and it's the next one, and that's hope consistently. Look at verses 49 through 56. Remember thy word, it says, unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. And, the, and he's saying, remember the word is remember your promises, God. He's actually praying God's word back to him. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. The proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not, in, not declined from thy law. I remember thy judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. And I want to note something in 53... And 51. If you're wondering what he's being made fun of about, it's because he follows God's law. So when he says in 53, horrors taken hold upon me because of the the wicked have forsake thy law. In other words, it is all about being a believer, being, being a follower of God, following his word. That is why people are going after him. So just in case you're wondering if this is religious persecution, he is articulating religious persecution. He is the one saying, I will follow God's law. And he's doing a really clear divide and saying, it's the wicked in my nation who are making fun or attacking. They're not agnostic people. They're not atheists that are doing it. It's people that actually claim to believe the same thing are going after him because he really believes it and they don't. So you understand where he's sitting as he writes 
Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I have remembered thy name, O Lord, in the night, and I've kept thy law. And that's the thing I like to highlight on 55. It is what he thinks about. It's what his hope is based on. This I had because I kept thy precepts. And I put down here, remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort. I, it says here, I remember thy judgments and have comforted myself. Thy statues have been my songs. And think about that when we think of music and what we sing to ourselves. I have remembered thy name, O Lord, in the night. As one commentator states of this section, he says, the Bible creates endurance. Its promises lift the heart and its panoramic insights strengthen the will. It truly is spiritual manna that keeps us on our feet and able to go on. We hope consistently in what God has said. This is where we fixed that. The fact is we should never forsake it. We must consistently hope in it. However, and as another writer noted this, many things prompt the reaction, why should I bother anymore? Let me just summarize what we've talked about. Verse 50, there's trouble. Verse 51, there's scornful opposition. Verse 53, nobody else bothers. In such times, the psalmist still centered his life on the Lord's word, finding that divine promises brought renewal. Again, verse 50, that they ministered comfort. Verse 52, the word held fast against scorners, Unrestrained opposition met with undeviating commitment brought comfort. That's hoping in his word. And I want us to remember the scorners and the attack was about the fact that he was committed to God's word. So the very thing that he is being attacked for, he is, and I'm going to use the word we do, entrenching himself in, and he's coming up from that saying, that brings me comfort The last section spoke about the freedom the Word brings, the boldness and the delight. Remember, we were talking about using it, and then we're praying for boldness, and we're ready to trust it, and we're going to proclaim it. And we even talked about the inhibitors to that, but the whole section was about the fact that we proclaim it. This one balances that one out by the grinding task of gripping resolutely to the Word. You have the proclaim it and looking for things that might stop you, and but you're proclaiming His Word, and there's this idea of expressing His Word out there, and here is, I like to call it, reality. How do people respond? You guys said it. What is one of the inhibitors? Rejection. And here is rejection listed. What do you do when you get rejected for speaking God's Word? And the psalmist says, go deeper. Entrench in His Word. And here's a note. It must be our very real and active hope. When the world attacks you, when the world attacks you for being a Christian, where do you turn? Are we turning to the thing they scorn, God's Word to us? Are we going back to what God has said, what He has told us? This is my Word, right? We know from Revelations, we don't add or take away from it. This is what he wants us to know. This is what he's given to us. Is that what we entrench in? And then I put the question that will kind of take a minute again to talk about. And it's similar to the one about using it, but it's, it's different because it deals with how you are responding to the situation. So sometimes 
as we're talking about proclaiming it, what stops me from talking God's word, right? There's things like I'm, I'm afraid of, of stumbling. There's fear. There's lack of understanding or knowledge. There's the fear of man. There's the fear of rejection. There's the fear of authorities. There's the I don't want to invest the time. There's the lack of love. There's all comes in. But now as he moves to this next section and he's pouring on, he's letting you see his life. So this is a a window into what he's facing. Psalm 119 is not a man sitting with a rosy pitcher and everyone's saying, good job writing. I'm so glad you study the Psalms. I'm so glad you study God's word. You are, you're the, I love talking to you. You make me feel good. These are people coming after him for what he's writing about. That's his life. It's not changing. He's giving you a window into reality here. And so as he comes in, he's telling you that as the scorn pours on, and we're going to end, I think, with the one about longing, and that's when he feels like it's just over. It's, it's at the wit's end. But here as it pours in, he hopes. And so I put, what can waylay our hope in God's word? What, what undermines hope. And I, I came up with a couple one-word answers I'm going to give, and then you guys chat about it. I'm taking the generalization from you guys. Table three, life. What waylays hope? Just living gets you. Stress waylays hope. Pressure waylays hope. I'm taking all the easy words I know. Uh, persecution waylays hope. Now, you are given the charge. Find some one to three word or more. That's fine. What undermines hoping consistently in God's word? And by hoping consistently, it's recognizing that it's his word to us. These are his promises. These are his guidelines. This is what he says we are to do. This tells us exactly what we need to live a life that honors him. And so what can undermine that? Let's take a minute uh, it's at 7.52. So at 7.53 or 7.53 and a half, we'll, we'll dive in. Jason says that table number four will start with the answers with his pen trick. Was that a pen trick or was that your hearing aid? Just kidding. <laughs> I'm giving you slightly past the minute and a half mark. So table number four, Jason with his hearing aid, flicking it over there. <laughs> what, are some, what are some of the, the things that waylay our hope in God's word? Anxiety, fear comes in, and then we, 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 we shift, right? And suddenly the, the hope we vested in is not, it's not God's word, right? Because that, the, the, this world can shake it and knock it out. You have another one? You said I had a whole bunch there. So hey, I'm forcing you down the line. That's a good, and actually this Sunday, we're in Titus, we're moving in, so we've gotten through preachers and pastors, and now we're into the whole church and what they're going to say, and they start with the older men, uh, and there's the thing that they're supposed to be, it's sound in faith, and sound is healthy, that word repeats itself through Titus, now you're getting a pre-sermon, so this is an extra nap for you guys, um, but you're sound, you're healthy in faith, and it means that, it's not deep enough, you, and they're calling older men to have a deep-seated trust in God's Word and in what He said. In other words, not doubting. So it, it ties together beautifully there. 
Uh, table number five, what do you have on what waylays your hope in God's Word? Yeah, discouragement gets there, right? That kind of, and we're going to get to the end of, of this, our lesson tonight, hopefully, and it's going to deal with the long consistently, and it's that like it just keeps dripping and it just doesn't stop, uh, and that can, and then impatience is the idea of, well, I, I remember someone saying to me, I prayed about this. I don't know why God hasn't solved it yet. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's, you're quick. I didn't realize prayer worked that way, that you could just tell God what to do, and he did it. It's like a, like a fast food uh, window. You order the hamburger, the oh, Big Mac, if you're going to go through McDonald's, and, and, and I, I expect God to give that to me. That's what he's supposed to do. He's, he's there to serve me, and so we become very impatient. Table six, what do we have? What waylays our hope? What could? Yeah, no results, right? What we perceive is no results. What we perceive are, we don't, and I use it in a toddler way, right? We don't get our way. And then we say to God, I didn't get what I wanted. So, hope is gone. Table three. We can have the wrong expectations. We can have the whole wrong that's not biblical. We can have a good expectation, and we, we expect God's t- timing to be ours and forgetting that it's His kingdom and not ours. And that will suck out hope, right? Because we are perceiving a promise that we want. Table one, something that waylays our hope in God's Word. You don't, you don't believe it, and I'm going to actually use that as a segue right into the next one, which is the idea that we are going to invest consistently. And really what I want you to see, I use the word invest because of inheritance. Um, we don't believe it, or it really isn't what we want. It's not our treasure. Um, his word is a valuable treasure of immeasurable worth. Our inheritance, so to speak, and something in which to invest consistently and you'll notice the difference. It's not a discussion question. It's a think question. We're actually going to think about it. We're not going to talk about that question there um, because I'm hoping it can be even more personal as you process it up there. But looking at 57 through 64, I'm going to stop at times and just ask quick questions as I walk through it. He starts in 57, thou art my portion, O Lord. And I wrote the question, is he? Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep thy words. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. And then I put the question, do we? Do we think about his word and then change direction because of it? Or do we change his word to fit the direction we're going? Because I want you to understand what he's saying here. He's not just casually grabbing a quick application and making sure he can find a a surface application of God's Word. He says, I thought about what I'm doing, and then the result in light of God's Word is I turned my feet 
unto thy testimonies. In other words, he said, I looked at my life. This is the guy that has been scorned and persecuted because of the depth that he follows God's word. People are mocking him. People from Israel, by the way. This is a Hebrew writing, and it's his own people who are persecuting him. This is not an outside force. This is within his nation. I want you to get the idea of what is pressuring in. And remember, they talk about princes. So people of influence and power are living, I call, the superficial believer's life. And so this is a deep believer. And he said that he looked at his ways and he turned into his testimonies. And I hope I'm making my point here. No matter how deep you think you are, you better take your life and you better go to God's word. And if you find that you think you're doing great all the time, you might be missing what God's having to say. Because he looked, remember who he is, I thought of my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. And I put, do we? I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. That's another one. How many of us stall or push back against God? I love this one. The bands of the wicked have robbed me. The idea of investing. But he says, but I have not forgotten thy law. Why use those words like that besides that they rhyme in Hebrew? Why say the wicked have robbed me? What have the wicked robbed him of, do you think? Stuff. Maybe I was hoping for a nice vacation, but it just blew up now. They're not leaving me any peace in the sense of a temporal peace. And then he says something, but I have not what? Forgotten thy law. When you're robbed, you've what? You've lost something, right? If someone steals your car, tomorrow morning you don't have a what? Car. But he's basically telling you what he invests in. Where is his treasure? They can't take my true treasure is what he's saying. They've robbed me. They've made life inconvenient here on earth, but I have not forgotten thy law. In other words, I haven't lost what I really invest or treasure. My real inheritance cannot be taken from me. At midnight, I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. Which, that's another do we get up? Is that, what does midnight typify in his life? It's the middle of the night. So what do you do when you wake up in the middle of the night? Is that the first thing you think of? Is God's word so permeated that it's on your mind? Then he goes on, I am a companion of all them that fear thee. And of them that keep thy precepts, and I ask this question, are we? Now let me define who is those that fear thee. It's not superficial believers. It is not shallow people of the faith. Who are his closest companions? Who, does he, who is he drawn to? And this I want you to think about. Think about who you're drawn to, and don't give me the check mark to Christians on there. That's not what he's saying. All of Israel are God's people in this sense. I'm not saying they're all redeemed. I'm saying they all have this centralized focus. I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. What are precepts? Detail, minutia. It's important. That's why there's a different word there. I am with people who go to the details of God's word, and that's what they follow. And I ask the question, are we? Is that who are companions are. It doesn't mean we don't have associations and friendships outside of that. We're not called to be monks. That's actually an unbiblical response to God's Word because we are to be out there being the light. You can't be the light that way. 
but it talks about who is our closest companion. Who are the people that we, we surround ourselves with to form and build life? It says, the earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. And then I put the question, do we see that? When we look at the world, do we see God's mercy? The psalmist does. Now remember, what's the window of his world? What's he under? Persecution. They scorn me. They mock me. And yet when he sees the earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy, teach me thy statutes. And isn't God merciful? Right? Think about it. He has. But we don't see it. I talk to people sometimes, and there's this entitlement. They're not trying to portray that. And this, they're trying to box God into the rules of humanity and say, well, God has to do this, and God should do this. And, and I'm thinking, wait a second, you're not seeing mercy. You're not, when you wake up, you're walking into the face of a merciful God. And he's tarried. His mercy. And when we don't see it, it tells us we've not been in his word. And that's what the psalmist is seeing. I, I, I quote a couple people. Dr. Mortier notes this. He says, his sufficiency for me and his faithful love fill all of life. And he wrote, and I thought this was fascinating. We are like the tribe of Levi who needed no other source of supply than the Lord. And process that. Who didn't get an inheritance in the promised land? Levi. Why? Because the Lord would be his portion. What is he saying? Thou art my portion. You are my inheritance. And so the psalmist says that. Thou art my portion. He contemplated his lifestyle and made sure to have turned my feet under thy testimonies. When he says the word way, he's saying, I looked at my lifestyle and I made changes. The guy that's writing Psalm 119, we're already down here. He is already faced, treasure, invested, he's walked, he's desired, and yet he's changing there. Even in loss, he turned to the word saying, I have not forgotten thy law, though I'm robbed of this world's goods or whatever it may be that he took from me. I look to your law. He sees God's mercy everywhere. He wants more of God's statutes. He says, teach me thy statutes, which resonates through the whole psalm. So I put pause a moment in process. Do we live like the Lord is the only supply that we need? That was a question that hit me. So this is a personal one. Do I sit down? Do I walk to life? And I say, out of this life, God, you're all I need. Or when I sit down at my desk in the chair at breakfast, do I have a list of things I want from God? And it doesn't mean God's going to say, well, Every Christian's a minimalist. You can only have so much, and that's all you get to have. It's just a perspective. Is God the only supply that we need? And then this is a thinking question. So I want just to process, and I'm going to move on to the next one. If that's not the case, so I'm, 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 I'm thinking through this. I'm looking at he sees mercy everywhere, right? And that's convicting to me. I, I don't know. I, I think... Honestly, do I wake up and see his mercy everywhere? Is that what I'm processing as I'm walking through life? Even the, the simple work things, right? A bump in work. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? My, uh, this past Monday, uh, we, our, our Suburban was, uh, didn't start, so I jump-started it, left it on for forever, and it charged up. It lasted a week, and then it died again. It always dies when I'm gone and Heather needs to use it. So 
Uh, we, we swap it around. I jump start. I drop my Suburban off last week, Monday, at 7.30 in the morning at the dealership. It needs a new battery, obviously. And then I always tell them, check other things. I'm not a mechanic, so you're here. Don't just, you know, I've had that happen. Well, you told us this was wrong. Ah. Right. That's like listen to a toddler tell you how to build a fence. All right. Come on. Like you're a mechanic. <laughs> Go and do some tests on this thing while we're here. I did remind them that they just tested it and the battery didn't die in a month. So you guys should have known this ahead of time. Right. There it is. So then I'm going on a business trip. My truck is filthy. And so I thought, ah, I'm taking a colleague with me. If it was just me or my family, I don't care about them. But if a colleague's going with me, I'm going to clean my truck. So my little, two little ones are done school. They help me clean the truck. So it becomes a very fun experience cleaning a truck. They do a pretty good job, actually. When it's all filthy, they can only do good, right, in the truck there. We're all done. We're going to the car wash. We're going to go and clean the outside. We just clean the inside. They want to go because they love, it's, it's an adventure. Um, so I come out, I drive up my road, and sure enough, I hit a piece of gravel on my road and puncture my tire. I need to leave in three hours. My colleague doesn't want to drive his, his car. So I'm like, and I have options, but I'm like, okay. So Heather says to me after, and then right at that moment, I pull into my driveway, and I'm like, great, you know, the pop tire. I'm talking to Heather. Then some guy stops and waves me down. I'm like, I want to deal with this issue. And he's like, could I ever do metal detecting here on your land? I used to do it. And I'm like, I wanted to say, I have a fence and a gate. What do you think the answer to that question is? I didn't do that. I said, hey, if I'm around, you know, email me. And then I said, I, I'm at City Light. So you just email City Light. It'll come to me. And if you see me, and maybe I get an email. In other words, I'm hoping he understood. I don't think I'm going to let you come metal detect, stranger, on my land. Dig holes if you find some treasure. Well, my kids are roaming around and playing. But maybe you picked up on the I call very soft no. But the whole time I come back and my wife has enough common sense, she's like, it ain't leaking fast. You can get to NTB, get it fixed. So go in there. And the whole time I remembered how frustrated I felt because I was frustrated. And I looked back and do I see the world full of mercy? I'm thinking, why, God, what are you doing to me? I'm trying to leave here and do it decently. What is my response? Shallow, fickle. I don't see his mercy. I don't see that the tire didn't blow, that I didn't wreck with my two little kids in the car. I don't see that I have enough air in the tire to make it back. I didn't, I didn't process that this guy that wants to metal to deck to my yard, I finally wrenched in the church, right? That I, I'm over this church here. All these things I missed that God's mercy was abundant. It's easy to forget and gripe about the fact that I had a flat tire. I got it changed. I had a full-size spare in the truck. I drove that all the way down to South Carolina and back. It's still on there. It's working great. My daughter says, are we ever going to have normal tires in the truck? I'm like, eh, maybe. <laughs> Depends when you get it. <laughs> you know. But I say that because when I read the idea of being full of mercy, when I see that, see, that's what I'm talking about. Do we see the world full of mercy when things aren't going the way we want them to do? Do we, do we see, even in a frustrating circumstance, that, hey, I'm here on Culpepper's when I got a flat tire. It wasn't 200 miles down the road going to South Carolina. Do we see it? And then if we don't, if he's not the supply, if he's not what we need, if he's not everything, what needs to be adjusted, refocused, or even removed in life for us to see him? How do we see him in his word as our real inheritance? And I put in my notes, not for public discussion, because I'm hoping you'll get personal. If God is not your inheritance, what needs to be removed? Yeah, well, let's get even more specific. How about what you think is your inheritance? What's replaced God in your mind? What's creeping in to take it away? 
And that's individual, and that's why I want it to be something we think about. Move on now to the idea of treasure consistently, and I, I have a little illustration. I write this, I experience both joy and a high cringing feeling when I open up my little kids' treasure drawers. So let me explain what we did. The two youngest, since they're young, they're getting to the point where they probably have to be split up. So Avery and Clayton share a room. Little cute beds. There's C's and there's A's over their names. We get to put the Peter Pan quote about boys never growing up. It's the little kid room. We're, we're going to be out of this soon. And no, we don't want any more babies. You know, <laughs> we're happy to see it go at some point. Not yet. Well, we put this uh, dresser in the middle of their two beds. They share the dresser. So some of their clothes and stuff in there. But we gave each of them one drawer. And it's basically their treasure drawer. It's what they value. This is the things that they get to have. And I actually love seeing the joy they get in guarding their special pictures, toys, wallet, rocks, grass. This is the craziest things I find in there. But it's, it's there. they really want it in that drawer. Like for some reason, like Avery will tell me, oh, can you make sure my book goes in that drawer? And I'm like, it's on your dresser. You'll get it in the morning. But it's, apparently it's just there's something special about the drawer. I cringe because I'm worried that we're training them to be hoarders. Because if you've ever opened up a kid's treasure drawer, you question their ability to be discerning at all. Like, and it's hard um, because my overriding response is to to look at them and be like, "Do you really need to keep that? I mean, this is a piece of paper that your friend gave you that scribbled on it in colors that don't match, and you've crumpled and put in here, and you're treating it like it's gold." You know, but the dollar is somewhere lost in this in this drawer. You've lost sight of what's going on. Uh, they smile, and I smile too, because they explain why each piece needs a spot. Um, if you've ever given kids a junk drawer, you know that thinning it out becomes a, a necessity. Uh, I am a, a softy, so I'll give them another drawer. Uh, my wife is not that lenient, and so I always say she can, you know. Moms are the most loving, but sometimes to keep the house, they have to be the most like, that's junk, it's got to go in the trash. And she can throw things away. Like, I feel guilty. Um, we still have four tubs of, of teddy bears. Now, part of that's like, I tell Heather, if you throw it away, we're not buying it again. So let's keep it for life or until they're done. But she won't let them overflow one drawer because kids know how to hold on to things, how to keep them. And let's be honest, they know how to treasure consistently. It never fades. They found a rock six months ago with some unique feature, and they'll hold on to it till they're 20 unless you make them get rid of it. And I look now at this idea that we come to, and that's to treasure consistently. And I look at my time, and I'm already out. So I'm going to read over this just to kind of put it in our brain. And this is where we'll jump in next week on, uh, on the spot here. But just kind of listen to this. Thou hast dealt well. Now, I want you to realize as I read one commentator, he says this. He says, we are pupils in God's school. He is the principal of the school, and the graduation award is the treasure of his word. And so this is the school of suffering that he's in, and the end result is that you'll treasure God's word. And then the question we'll talk about is what dangerous temptations are there during suffering that lead to a lack of treasuring his word after the suffering takes place. So let me read this, um, this psalm and then we'll be dismissed. Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according unto thy word. In other words, he links us again to this idea that God is true. 
That's a, that's a statement of God's never changing nature. God said he does. He doesn't change. This is how he's, he deals. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have I kept thy word. And that's another reminder. He's saying he's seeing suffering now as a, as, a, as a straightening tool God would use. Thou art good and doest good. Process this. He's suffering. He's afflicted. Why, why make this statement? Because when we suffer, we question God's what? Goodness. He's saying, thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. In other words, these people are lying about me. It's undeserved affliction. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Treasure it consistently. So next week, we're going to dive in to this topic here. Keep moving our way through. I never finish what I intend to finish, but I just want you to know we're still moving carefully and consistently forward. And again, I hope that you'll read through Psalm 119. I hope you'll start looking at the words for word and law that come out through this. There's eight of those words. And, and we're prepared at the end of this month to dialogue as a group about how we can apply this psalm to our life, how we can make it in, in a very real way what we've done, what, we're, what we encourage others to do, and then also connecting to some of the specific details, the, the nuances that are there, and, and, and seeing how we can uh, deepen our, when I say trust, our treasuring, our hope, our desire, our seeking. And so we're going to go back to those overarching themes and how can we apply Psalm 119 and grow in a very specific way uh, through those.